Companies operating at U.S. airports sometimes need extra help in processing inbound international passengers or cargo. Customs and Border Protection will provide that help as a service for which the agency receives reimbursement. In fact, CBP's Office of Field Operations recently signed up with several dozen companies. For how this program works, we turn to the director of the Alternative Funding Division, Ryan Flanagan, who spoke to Federal Drive host Tom Temin. How does this work? Because isn't CBP already having a presence where there might be inbound cargo from overseas or passengers overseas? So how does this work? Where are you not? Do they need you? So the reimbursable program, services program, enables partnerships between CBP and private sector or government entities, allowing CBP to provide additional inspection services on a reimbursable basis upon the voluntary request of our stakeholders. So these services are above and beyond what we are able to perform under CBP's existing budget and is intended to be an augmentation of any existing services provided at a desired location for stakeholders. Now, there are, I think, 39 companies that recently signed up with you to do this at various airports throughout the country. Some I've never even heard of, but I guess cargo must maybe come in from Canada or something to them. And what are those companies now doing And also, what is CBP doing there? And then if they have signed up for reimbursable services, do you add people and hours and man hours to those particular locations? It really depends on the stakeholder needs. So we see a variety of utilization under the program. It could be to drive down passenger wait times at a given port of entry. It could be to provide services maybe outside of the hours of operation at a port of entry for program stakeholders. It essentially allows the program stakeholders to determine where they would like to leverage an augmentation of the existing services that we can provide to them in order to meet their own respective businesses' needs. Because some of these are large, like Adobe Inc. is at Los Angeles International Airport, Portland International, Kona, uh, Oakland, San Jose, big West Coast airports, lots of activity going on. But then there's one for Butler Aviation, I've heard of them, doing business as the Apex Jet Center at Huma Terabon Airport. I don't even know where that is, but <laughs> what what's going on at a place like that? Sure. So that's down in Louisiana. And, and the thing is, of course, we don't discriminate. So we have program stakeholders that are in all environments at ports of entry of all different shapes and sizes. And so really it just comes down to the applicant and stakeholders needs versus what CBP could potentially provide them under our appropriated budget. So yes, again, in all modes, it really comes down to what that stakeholder is looking for. We'll make a determination if that's something that we can actually provide under our existing budget, or if it's something that may warrant some reimbursable services. And so the good thing about the program, again, is that there's no minimum threshold of services that a stakeholder needs to request during a given year to maintain the partnership. So really, they have that as another tool in their toolbox if they want to leverage reimbursable services to obtain the services that they need for their respective company. And these are services that only CBP can legally perform? Correct. So these are for all CBP services in all modes, land, sea, air, rail wherever is needed. Right. So we know what CBP does with respect to people flying in. What are some of the other services, such as verification of what's in the cargo, that type of thing? Correct. So, you know, again, we're doing everything that we can to meet the increased demand of travel and trade at all of our ports of entry, which is a key component to CBP's mission. 
And so to your point, it may be a situation in which a, a program stakeholder is looking to get cargo processed and off the docks outside of the hours of operation at our port of entry. So if that's something that's operationally feasible for CBP, uh, we would engage with that stakeholder to map out the scope of services that could be provided there, let's say at a seaport. Similarly speaking, you know, in, in the air environment, if there's an increased need let's say by a uh, program stakeholder for services, be it to drive down wait times during core hours of operation, they can leverage RSP for that. If they would like to get some processing outside of the core hours of operation, that's something that if it is operationally feasible for CBP, then we'll take that into account and make a determination if we can perform those services for them. So one thing I would say about that again, is that it, it's truly a partnership in that once we enter into an agreement with the program stakeholder, we will outline the scope of services that CBP may be willing to accommodate in the form of a memorandum of understanding. And that's something that'll dictate, you know, just the cadence of any engagement between both parties to ensure that, you know, essentially both sides' respective needs are met as part of the partnership. We're speaking with Ryan Flanagan. He's director of the Alternative Funding Programs Division, and that's part of the Office of Field Operations at CBP. And what kind of statutory or authority do you have? How did you obtain that CBP in order to have this? It's unusual for federal agencies to offer services for a fee to private entities in this manner, I think, isn't it? It is. It is. But uh, the origins of the program date back to 2013, you know, when record increases in, in passenger and cargo volumes were outpacing CBP's personnel resources. So Congress enacted at that time the Consolidated and Further Continuing Appropriations Act, in which Section 560 permitted CBP to enter into five total agreements for customs and immigration services only within port of entry boundaries. So given the popularity of the program at that time and the demand from other private sector and government entities, the reimbursable authority has evolved in terms of relaxing limitations in the scope of services that we could provide. So in particular, under Section 41 of the Cross-Border Trade Enhancement Act of 2016, Essentially, CBP's reimbursable authority evolved in terms of relaxing the limitations and the scope of services that we could provide. So in particular, there's now no limitation in the number of agreements we can enter into. The stakeholder agreements don't expire. Agricultural processing is now permitted, and CBP may provide services not only at ports of entry, but any CBP facility or any location which CBP would be willing to provide services. It was essentially a recognition by Congress that CBP, we're doing everything that we can to meet the increased demand of travel and trade at our ports of entry. But this is an authority that allows us to bridge that gap between what we're able to do under our existing budgets and meet the demand of uh, the trade community. Yeah, I wonder about that just to play devil's advocate, because Congress could also say, golly, we've got this demand, you know, Air France is landing in SeaTac and disgorging a bunch of cranky people out of its dreamliner that have been in the air for 15 hours. Why not just enlarge CBP so that it can meet the mission that the nation actually has? So, no, that's a, that's a great question. And the intent of this program is not to impact uh, CBP's continued efforts to increase our staffing resources. If anything, this, this, again, is just to bridge that gap 
to where until we can get those resources in place, it gives our program stakeholders the opportunity to perhaps obtain CBP services at a desired location. Wow. And do you have metrics on how much revenue this brings to CBP in a given year and how many man hours of CBP staff? Because it sounds like there might be people you'd have to pay overtime. Say, would you like to stick around for another shift? Only this time it's on Air France or on, you know, Butler Aviation. That's correct. So operational feasibility concerns are always taken into account, and and the local port director has operational autonomy in determining whether or not a request for these services is feasible. And so that's something that they'll hash out with the program stakeholder, be it Air France or any one of our other 374 program stakeholders that uh, impact over 239 ports of entry from Saipan to San Juan. And so to your point, it's a situation where if it's not operationally feasible for CBP, we would deny a request. But that's something that would be outlined with the program stakeholder prior to a request for services in a memorandum of understanding, which dictates the scope of services locally. How much do you take in a year so far? What I can tell you in terms of overall usage under the programs is that we've provided over 1.3 million hours of services from over 483,000 CBP officer assignments. And with that, we processed over 19 million travelers and over 2.1 million personal and commercial vehicles under the program. And specifically at the seaports of entry, the program has contributed to nearly 2 million additional agriculture and radiation portal monitor inspections as well. A lot of usage under the program. That's something that does break it out into three categories with our program stakeholders. We've got those stakeholders that request services you know, on a regular basis, those that request services on an ad hoc basis, and then lastly, they have yet to request any services, understanding that the agreements don't expire and they can use this as another tool in their toolbox if they so choose. And is there an average hourly rate for CBP? I guess it depends on how many people are there, but like per person, per hour? That is something that is really tied to, to your point, the number of officers that would be required to provide the requested services. And it's actually tied to the specific salaries and benefits of the officers that would come out to provide those services. But one thing that we do with our interested parties is that prior to entering into an agreement, we'll go over general estimates of what costs could potentially look like for that stakeholder. And so that they were very transparent with that, you know, with the program stakeholder, and they have a general sense of what the cost could look like prior to submitting a formal request. And so one thing on that note is that we operate, you know, especially for our U.S. taxpayers through appropriated budget, we operate under least cost principles when it comes to allocating overtime to our officers. When overtime is assigned to our officers, we do it obviously in a way that is at the lowest cost to the federal government and in turn our taxpayers. And what we do is we extend that same courtesy to program stakeholders under RSP when it comes to assigning overtime services so that RSP stakeholders have that confidence that the officers that are coming out at the time they've requested to provide services Ryan Flanagan is director of the Alternative Funding Division, part of the Office of Field Operations at Customs and Border Protection, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Fly with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils, that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.